0: Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 117. J.E.D.P., the Mount bald Affixio, and C.S. Lewis. Conclusion Enigma treading on enigma, I exclaimed. I did not come here to be asked riddles. No, but you came and found riddles waiting for you. Indeed, you are yourself the only riddle. What you call riddles are truths, and seem riddles, because you are not true. As we close this long series this week, I want our listeners to keep one idea in mind. I am preaching agnosticism. I am advocating for the position that takes our fundamental human limitations, our ignorance, seriously. The Apostle John declared in his Gospel and his first epistle that, No man has seen God. Our creeds use uniformly the epistemic language of faith, not knowledge. Christianity uniformly proclaims its faith in Christ. And faith begins in uncertainty, in agnosticism, in ignorance. That is, in the existential reality of human beings. Faith is a stepping forth toward knowledge, a systematic approach to it. To use Plato's language in the Phaedo, faith is a raft we choose to sail on the sea of uncertainty, of agnosticism, in search of firm, pragmatic ground in search of goodness and truth. Faith is neither good nor bad in itself. It is simply the universally necessary condition of living, moving forward in the uncertain reality of limited, rational beings. Allow me to bring forth one more big gun before we move forward. When Immanuel Kant noticed that the emerging rationalism of Enlightenment science threatened to undermine the very foundations of human freedom, Ethics, and theistic faith, he wrote his magnum opus, The Critique of Pure Reason, to quote, make room for faith by limiting the pretensions of reason to knowledge. His argument, he said, will quote, above all, confer an inestimable benefit on morality and religion by showing that all the objections urged against them may be silenced forever by the Socratic method, that is to say, by proving the ignorance of the objector. The end toward which we have been driving in this series is now upon us. I remain unpersuaded by these critics, though I readily admit the power of their theoretical reconstructions. What Kant reminds us of, and what the critics themselves seem all too willing to forget, is the speculative nature of their conclusions their fundamental ignorance of the truth of what they claim. Although they may not be proven wrong, they are not proven right. The existence and the ever-increasing prevalence and acceptance, as well as the persistence and longevity of the higher critical method in the Western world, remains to be accounted for. In addition, we want to clarify how the Mount Ebal de Fixio, as an archaeological find in its context, might play an important part in assessing the credibility of the assured results of modern scholarship, so often claimed by these academic critics of the Bible's authority. To take the last point first, if the Monte Valdeificio holds up to rigorous investigation, it strikes a powerful, if not quite fatal blow to the higher critical approach to the Bible. as it seriously undermines their timeline. And one of the justifications for dividing the Pentateuch between the J and E accounts. The argument ran that it was only after the Davidic kingdom was divided that the authors produced two accounts, one using the name El for God in the kingdom of Israel, while in the kingdom of Judah, the divine name of Jehovah was dominant. These two accounts, they claim, were only later combined. If, as the defixio seems to show, The term Lord God, or the God Jehovah, was in documented use hundreds of years before they claim it could have been, one of their assumptions falls, and also tends to weaken many of their other assumptions. Also, if the writing of Hebrew in the Proto-Sinaitic script appears on Mount Ebal at approximately the time of Joshua's conquest not to mention at the site of an altar on the mountain of the curse. The idea that Moses and Joshua could not have written the texts ascribed to them becomes much more difficult to maintain. One final thought from someone who is no expert on any of this, but has tried to apply common sense to the research he's done in the course of this series. It seems to me that much of the evidence for the JEDP theory advanced by the higher critics, might be at least partially accounted for by what this defixio suggests. If Moses had written in Proto-Sinaitic Hebrew, later generations would have rewritten Moses' words into the prestige Phoenician text, adopted by the Hebrews in Israel, and this Phoenician Hebrew would again need to be rewritten into the modern Hebrew text based on the Aramaic script becoming dominant in post-exilic Israel. The preservation and combining of various written documents through these various script revisions, probably accomplished as suggested by the scholars in distinct traditions between the two kingdoms, and finally coming together into a unified canon in the post-exilic period, might go a long way toward explaining differences in style, vocabulary usage, etc., And still preserve both the unity of authorship and the authority in the transmission and tradition of the sacred text. Next, why do I remain unpersuaded by biblical higher criticism? We have covered at some depth C.S. Lewis's case against these theoretical reconstructions of textual history. We should complete that account here before moving on to my own particular objections. Earlier this year, we covered another important Lewis essay, The Funeral of a Great Myth. There he argues that the developmental myth, or evolution, is one of the most intellectually compelling stories ever crafted by the human imagination, that he himself considers it, quote, one of the most moving and satisfying world dramas which have ever been imagined, end quote. The faith substance of the myth is that, quote, Everything is moving upwards and onwards, he explains. For in the myth, evolution, as the myth understands it, is the formula of all existence. To exist means to be moving from the status of almost zero to the status of almost infinity. To those brought up on the myth, nothing seems more normal, more natural, more plausible then that chaos should turn into order, death into life, ignorance into knowledge. I grew up believing this myth, and I have felt. I still feel. It's almost perfect grandeur. Let no one say we are an unimaginative age. Neither the Greeks nor the Norsemen ever invented a better story. Even to the present day, in certain moods, I could almost find it in my heart to wish that it was not mythical, but true. This myth, and let's be clear, what we are discussing here is not the more limited scientific theory of biological evolution, which must stand or fall on its own according to the dictates of science, is believed, accepted, assumed, and become, for all intents and purposes, reality certain knowledge in our collective cultural mind. In other words, we have forgotten or have denied the fundamental doctrine we are preaching here, agnosticism. We are not recognizing our faith as faith. As both Lewis and Chesterton are at pains to point out, and which the Christian atheist has asserted since we began, This myth is one of the unquestioned cornerstones on which the whole spirit of our age rests, and most certainly on which the critical approach to historical, cultural, psychological, and religious studies stands. It is, however, but one speculative account, one story that explains our existence and experience, one unproven And unprovable approach to the data. It is a belief system, a metaphysical position, and when honestly viewed, when we remove our voluntary, hyper rational blinders, it rationally undermines itself. Lewis says To reach the positions held by the real scientists, which are then taken over by the myth, you must, in fact, Treat reason as an absolute. But at the same time, the myth asks me to believe that reason is simply the unforeseen and unintended byproduct of a mindless process at one stage of its endless and aimless becoming. The content of the myth thus knocks from under me the only ground on which I could possibly believe the myth to be true. End quote. Listeners, you must understand my own ambivalence here. I did not choose the Christian atheist name for sensationalism. As an atheist, this argument would have done nothing to convince me to abandon the myth. Should it have? Probably, were I honestly rational, willing to follow the logic of my atheistic assumptions. However. The myth does not just at times ignore reason. It twists and rewrites it, using what Hegel would call the cunning of reason to hide from itself its own inadequacies. That is, as Lewis says, quote, We here touch a radical disease in the whole style of thought, end quote. As a Christian, however... Having made the fundamental Gestalt that refuses the Hegelian dialectical reasoning on which my atheism was built, I must reject the myth. The Christian atheist can see, can feel the power of both sides of this coin. What if, we might ask, everything is not evolving ever upward in a mindless progress? What if, instead, At least some things start in a more advanced state and decline. Is this not, in fact, the more natural picture our experience of the world suggests? That systems, unless some intervening force sustains, restores, or actively orders them, tend toward dissolution? If it is true that a tree grows from a nut, we must not forget, That the nut came from a tree. This metaphysical view is more rationally coherent, and it is as consonant with the data as developmentalism or evolution. I am perfectly content to acknowledge that I, that we, do not know which of these two rational metaphysical reconstructions is true, that we must remain skeptical, willing to revise and correct when we have good reason, not contradicted by the evidence, to do so. But it is not my Christian faith that has departed from healthy skepticism, from agnosticism. I believe God created the world, that a rational mind lies behind the order and structure of the cosmos. This belief is consistent with an acknowledgement of our fundamental ignorance of the full truth concerning these matters. The critics and the advocates of scientism, however, assert their lack of belief in anything, that no basic faith postulate lies at the base of their rational explanations. In essence, true to their Hegelian dialectical reasoning, they claim certainty for their faith postulates. Without claiming certainty for their faith postulates, they assume an evolutionary progression, that the complex is always the result of the growth and advancement of the simple. Their evidence for this faith position is a product of their faith position. Adopting a hermeneutic of suspicion, for example, they discover the advanced religious codes in the Pentateuch, as evidence of their late origins. And thus, they could not have been written by Moses, who was much earlier, and thus less advanced. This conclusion, however, does not deny Mosaic authorship on the basis of the evidence. It denies what is evident on the basis of an assumption it brings to the text a particular article of faith which they deny to themselves and others as faith. They treat their faith as evident, as not to be denied, as certain. And their rational reconstructions are built from a series of nested assumptions of this sort, belief postulates they bring to the data, each addition of which decreases the statistical probability that their conclusions are true. We are preaching agnosticism as corrective to certainty. And as we explored last week, they approach the texts with a hermeneutic of suspicion, assuming deception. We rational agents find that for which we diligently seek. Thus, the woke find racism in every context and circumstance. Thus, feminism finds misogyny and the patriarchy behind each and every instance of female grievance. Thus, certain Christians find a demon behind every bush. Thus, socialists find capitalist exploitation in each and every business dealing. I am not claiming that a hermeneutic of suspicion is never warranted. It most certainly is, at times. But I like to have good, independent reasons for adopting it, and I don't want those reasons to be the circular result of having first adopted suspicion, of allowing ideology to become the sole lens through which we view our world, an iterative, self-reinforcing feedback loop destroying common sense and... Clear sight. I am skeptical of the unquestioned skepticism that reigns in academia today because I remain agnostic. Finally, like Lewis, I have my own experience of academia and philosophy that provides a sort of immunity against the rational enchantments of speculative reason, like those offered by the higher critics. I have spent my entire scholarly life reading and studying philosophers and philosophical systems, each and every one, unless second-rate, is rationally compelling. As a young student, my allegiance to philosophers and positions would switch over and over again, as I was convinced by the rational cases made by brilliant philosophical minds. When I studied ethics and read John Stuart Mill, I became a committed utilitarian. Until, that is, I read W. D. Ross's Prima Facie Duties, and so on with many others. In each case, if I bought the presuppositions, the argument convinced me. This is the nature of of the philosophical enterprise, to play with rational systems of thought. Eventually, though, after years of playing in this sandbox, I came to understand that these toys were tools for thinking, that I could pick up differing systems to analyze various problems, but that the systems need not be accepted as true to be useful no matter how compelling they might be as intellectual constructs. I still always read a philosopher, initially at least, with a hermeneutic of faith, sympathetically, as this is the only way to truly understand their position. If you haven't been convinced by a rational system, you have not understood it. Once I understand a philosophical position, however, I put it down among the other toys, and I choose a more skeptical lens to evaluate the collection of toys. Just because a theory is logical, accounts for the facts, and is powerfully convincing, does not mean it is true, or even that it is on the right track. In fact, if you read them fairly, With a hermeneutic of faith, they are all intellectually compelling, and most especially when they reinforce your own presuppositional framework. Likewise, the existence of conspiracy theories and the persistence of belief clusters like flat earth theory are powerful testimonies to our capacity to rationalize data and make compelling cases. When you listen, with true open-mindedness to an articulate spokesman of the Flat Earth Society, their case is compelling. They have a ready answer for each objection you raise. The 9-11 conspiracy, Google Loose Change nine hundred eleven makes a powerful case which is nevertheless false. The JFK assassination conspiracies are so widespread and intricately developed that most Americans simply accept them as history. In addition, as we have repeatedly observed, the experts assert their positions with a confidence and certainty that is all by itself incredibly difficult for most of us to resist. The appeal to authority being one of our most irresistible rational instincts, cowing those who dare to challenge their authority with their superior claims to knowledge, as we've recently observed in the video performances of Doctors Cargill and Rolston. If you will remember the Bible Brisket website we read in episode 111, one of the implied points in favor of the JEDP theory is its longevity in the academic community. Indeed, Lewis himself, as we pointed out, said he hoped it would be a mere fad. Regrettably, it was no fad. It has only gained ground in terms of its acceptance in the academic community. If it is not true, as I believe, or at least getting at what is true, why such longevity? Why has it stood the test of time so well? Although I would tend to agree that the persistence of a theory through time speaks to its credibility, there are reasons why this higher critical approach to literary texts has hung on in theological circles when it has been systematically abandoned in most other contexts. First, as mentioned above, it plays into the motivated reasoning of this age of imminence, which denies transcendence denies the supernatural. In a word, if you deny God, the higher critical approach to the scriptures is the only toy in the sandbox. It has to be true. It certainly is true. Otherwise, we will have to abandon the sandbox. As archaeologist and Harvard professor Larry Steger famously said when Adam Zertal announced the discovery of the altar on Mount Ebal, Quote, if Zertal has found an altar on Mount Ebal, we archaeologists and scholars all need to go back to kindergarten, End quote. This is why the critics will put up such a battle against anything that rocks their sandbox. They have only one toy in it. Take that toy from them, and they have nothing to play with. The academic approach to the scriptures. Has nowhere else to go. Having by fiat banished the supernatural from any approach to the Bible, they will never willingly turn back the clock. They believe there is no God, so they will never find him in the Bible, or anywhere else for that matter. They have abandoned agnosticism, an acknowledgement of their own ignorance. A Socratic approach that recognizes that we choose our faith in uncertainty, our hermeneutical approach to the world, in favor of a hyper-rational, left-hemisphere certainty which will force reality into its preconceived boxes. Ultimately, they have faith that they are certainly not living by faith. Trust them. They're experts. I have so many more thoughts and themes to develop on this topic, but my welcome with all of you on this issue is probably worn even thinner than I can imagine, and I promised a conclusion. To end, then, this long series, I have two quotations. First, a very long one from an atheist writing in Germany at approximately the same time as many of the scholarly German divines carrying out the higher critical project. Friedrich Nietzsche. Second, a very short quote from a Christian born only 370 years after Jesus died, St. Augustine of Hippo. Listen to the atheist's portrait of the German religious scholars and see if the portrait I've painted bears any resemblance to what Nietzsche, their contemporary and countrymen, saw. I see clearly represented here our friends Chris Rolston, Robert Cargill, and the higher critics, as well as most of the sociocultural and academic elite which now dominate our popular world. Nietzsche wrote, quote, Among these indifferent people nowadays belongs the majority in the middle classes, including most of the hard-working scholars and all the accessories of the university. From the viewpoint of the devout or merely church-going people, we rarely imagine how much goodwill is involved nowadays when a German scholar takes the problem of religion seriously. On the basis of his whole trade, he inclines to a supercilious, almost kindly amusement towards religion, mixed now and then with a slight contempt for the, uncleanliness of the spirit which he assumes is present wherever people still profess their faith in the Church. The scholar succeeds only with the help of history, hence not from his own personal experience, in bringing to religion a reverent seriousness and a certain timid consideration. The practical indifference about religious matters in which he was born and raised tends to sublimate itself in him to caution and cleanliness, things which avoid contact with religious men and things. and. How much naivete, respectful, childish, and boundlessly foolish naivete, lies in this belief of the scholar in his own superiority, in the good conscience of his toleration, in the unsuspecting, unsophisticated certainty with which his instinct treats religious people as a less worthy and lower type above whom he himself has grown up, out, and away from. The scholar, the small, presumptuous dwarf and member of the rabble, the diligent and nimble head-and-hand worker of ideas, modern ideas. Notice the emphasis that Nietzsche makes on the arrogant certainty with which the academic scholar approaches both his topic and his own superiority to simple believers, and contrast what is said by St. Augustine in his humble confession of his own human ignorance when his arrogance has led him astray. We here, like Augustine, Socrates, and the wisest of men throughout history preach agnosticism to the certainties of the atheist and the higher critic, for, quote, this is the way I should like him to rejoice, preferring to find you, that is God, in his uncertainty, rather than in his certainty to miss you. From Augustine's Confessions. I beg your indulgence for one last quote, the one with which we began today. Think of the first phrase as that of each human being living in agnosticism, crying out in frustration and agony, and the last as God's answer to that heartfelt cry, us. Enigma treading on enigma, I exclaimed. I did not come here to be asked riddles. God in reply. No, but you came and found riddles waiting for you. Indeed, you are yourself the only riddle. What you call riddles are truths, and seem riddles because you are not true. We do not know. Oh, we do not know. I... I'm a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember... You can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.